Sam used to be four years old, hard to picture it now, but when he was four years old, one day he was running laps in the house. If you've been to our house, you know that the main level is laid out like a racetrack. There's the entryway to the kitchen to the living room back to the entryway, and, and kids like to make the rounds, or they did, and Sam one day was racing against his imaginary opponent, MacGyver. And during this race, I thought he'd appreciate some added drama, so I began to call the race. Samuel Toman leading down the back stretch. But here comes MacGyver. MacGyver takes the lead. But Samuel Toman charging hard back in front. You know, this kind of thing, like it's a horse race. And Sam didn't really like that, apparently. He asked me to stop. I, I didn't realize he was serious, so I kept doing it. And finally, he, he stopped and he said, Dad, people are laughing at you. <laughs> Teachable moment, right? Don't want to miss this opportunity. I know it lies ahead for my son, that there's a tsunami coming, that the pressure of, of godless people trying to get him to be like them, along with this desire he has for the praise and approval of people that, that we all start life with, it, it makes it a challenge for him to keep from being swept away. So, so here's a great opportunity to explain to my son that the opinions and approval of others shouldn't control him. Sam, it doesn't matter what other people think. It only matters what God thinks. And Sam looked at me and he said, Dad, he's laughing at you. <laughs> well, you certainly don't want that. But given the option, if you had to make a choice between man's disapproval and God's disapproval, a man laughing at you or God laughing at you, what would you choose? Does it matter to you more what people think of you or what God thinks of you? The applause of men or the applause of God? We want people to like us. I've heard it said, if you say, I don't care if people like me, people don't like you. We have that within us. Some level, it's normal and healthy to have some level of, of concern for the opinions of at least some people. But there's also a point at which that becomes sinful idolatry, where the need for the praise of men is either the symptom of an unregenerate heart, uh, meaning someone who has not come to a saving relationship with Jesus, or, or it's a symptom of a believer who needs correction. Revelation 21.8 says this, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And this doesn't mean that anyone who is ever sold out for the approval of people ends up in hell, but rather those whose, whose lives are characterized by, by living for the praise of people, those whose greatest love is having people have a high opinion of them, that they want the praise of people more than they want the praise of God, that those are those who would rightfully be called cowards. But a, a sober reminder of their end here in Revelation 21.8. In this morning's text, we see two kinds of people in stark contrast. There are those who are absolutely driven along by the opinions and praises of men, the cowardly, and then those who are unmoved by such things, like a ship in, in the sea whose anchor holds fast in the face of hurricane winds. So we're in Acts chapter 4 this morning. The words will be on the screen, but I encourage you to follow along if you have a Bible or an app on your phone. Keep your finger there. Uh, we'll be working through the text 
in this morning's message. Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the very word of God. Let's pray. God, so we invite you now to have your way in us. Pray that your word would have its effect in our hearts, that we would humbly receive what you have to teach us, that we would receive the correction that we need, that we'd receive the faith that we need to follow you, that we would live in surrender to all that uh, you call us to be and do. Message you do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. So the drama here in, this, in our passage this morning is the continuation of what happened back in Acts 3. Peter and John healed a crippled beggar. Nothing wrong with that. But they did it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now there's a problem. The, the ultimate purpose of that miracle was to point people to, to the Lord Jesus, to the glory of Jesus, to the glory of the gospel, the gospel, the, the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, and rose again from the dead so that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. To believe in Jesus is to admit spiritual and moral bankruptcy, to admit utter hopelessness and utter helplessness apart from a Savior. It's to acknowledge the rightful rule of the Creator over every aspect of one's life. Feeding the hungry, a good thing. Healing people, just fine. Preaching the gospel, calling sinners to repent, giving all glory to Jesus, not okay. This is where the trouble began in our story. And the more things change in the history of the world, really the more they just stay the same. It's no different today. You can be a nice, moral person who, who meets the physical needs of people and everyone will love you. No one will have a problem with you. But start bringing in Jesus, Jesus who rightfully rules his creation, the one whose perfect life is the standard of goodness, who, whose death is the only way for sinners to be reconciled to a holy God, who is not just a way, he is the way, Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given, given among men by which we must be saved. Suddenly there's a problem. People get offended which is incredible, I think, and telling. In a place where everyone can have their own religious beliefs, in our coexist culture, we're all just getting along, coexisting peacefully, because you can have your religious beliefs, and I can have my religious beliefs, and no one is going to come and make anyone um, by force 
adhere to their beliefs. So how could my beliefs offend you? If you don't think they are true, why do you care? And according to my belief system, an unbeliever will not spend eternity worshiping Jesus and enjoying him forever. Well, the unbeliever doesn't want to do that anyway, nor, they believe, nor do they believe that to be true. So why is a Christian's conception of what heaven is and how exclusive it is offensive to anybody? Unless there are transcendent truths the human heart knows to be true, but suppresses in order to maintain the illusion of being their own authority. Truths the human heart doesn't like and doesn't want to be reminded of. So if you've had this experience where where someone is offended and upset by the gospel, take heart in that. There's a good chance that they understand the gospel. That's why they're offended. And then on the flip side, maybe you've had interactions with unbelievers and and they're not bothered or offended at all. And you, you wonder if they've heard a word you said. So there's this enormous cultural pressure to tone it down. Let's find some common ground here. Let's find a common denominator. Let's find something we all agree on, and we'll just focus on that. This is the syncretism that Jared was talking about last week. The church and secular culture finding common ground, which is really just the church compromising to what secular culture finds acceptable. And pretty much just the life cycle of churches and and largely denominations, that they start out hot, living out and proclaiming the gospel, and and not everyone likes that. So over time, there's pushback, and people are offended, and it, it ends up in compromise, right? And compromise runs its course until finally, the final common denominator is meeting felt needs. Let's just meet felt needs. Let's meet physical needs of people. You get very little pushback for feeding the hungry, which is a very good thing. It's, it's important, but it's not ultimate. Addressing physical needs does nothing to change the heart. It can, in some sense, point folks to the goodness and grace of God, but in itself it is powerless in matters of eternal significance. It is powerless without the truth of the gospel proclaimed. So, so then when we start compromising... We try to keep the peace. We try to find common ground. We will flush the truth. We will flush doctrine. And it's interesting to observe this, to see churches become permissive so as not to offend anybody. Churches that won't call behavior sin so that people can just hear about Jesus and just believe in Jesus. But when it comes down to it, it's Jesus who's offensive. It's not biblical commandments about sexuality or gender that are the problem. It's not really the commandments themselves. It's the fact that there are commandments. That there is a commander and it's not me. The real problem, the offense, is that creatures don't get to decide these things. The creator of the universe has decided. He has made order. The problem is in the human heart. The heart is rebellious. It doesn't want to be told what to do. To to believe in Jesus in a saving way is to say to King Jesus, command me. Unbelievers don't want to do that. It's offensive to them. 
And so churches give up on anything controversial at first, but eventually they give up everything else. Eventually out goes the atonement, out goes the supernatural. Heaven and hell, we can't talk about heaven and hell unless you plan to say that everyone goes to heaven, which the Bible doesn't. Hell can't say that. Syncretism will will bring us to this place where the only emphasis that is permissible is that this earthly life is the one we should focus on. We should live primarily so as to make this our best life and to do it now. This temporary earthly life then becomes ultimate. And that's a sellout. That's compromise. That's the secular world bringing the church to its level. So if you hear someone preaching or teaching, talking about your best life now, and it's about health and wealth, that's a sellout. That's just what the secular world wants to hear. We had just a great example of this this past Easter. As a, a U.S. senator and Christian reverend tweeted this out about Easter. I think we have it on the screen here. He said, the meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether you are Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. That's that's just the epitome of secular culture. Be a good person, help others, save yourself. The Bible, on the other hand, Right? True Christianity, on the other hand. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. There's nothing more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Help others, sure. Save ourselves, never. We are damned apart from the resurrection of Christ. But this is the kind of confused thinking that emerges for theological liberals trying to serve two masters. God and his word over here and the opinions and approval of the secular world over here. Try to bring them together and the result is absurd. And really, these are just modern day Sadducees. The Sadducees were were the religious leaders who comprised most of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling council of Israel. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in the miraculous. Well, now they have a problem, right? First Jesus, all this news that Jesus has been resurrected and witnesses have seen him, people are believing in the resurrected Christ, thousands upon thousands of people in Jerusalem now believing in Jesus. Now they've got this cripple who's been miraculously healed and it is known and it is being made known and it's a threat to their status among the Jewish people. They want the approval of the people. They, they like what that does for them and is for them. And it's a threat to their status with the Roman government who has put them in this position of power and authority and prestige and privilege. It's a threat to everything they hold dear. Verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So this is the the Sanhedrin here. These are the religious leaders for the Jewish people, 70 men plus the high priest, comprised mostly of Sadducees. 
The crippled man had been healed. The gospel was preached. It said 5,000 men believed, so the number of new Christians could be 10 or 20,000 with women and children. Well, the, the Sanhedrin, they don't know what's going on. They just know it has to be stopped. And when they decided that Jesus had to be stopped, they were able to get him killed. Right, so keep in mind, that's what they're capable of. Peter and John know what they're capable of. They had Peter and John thrown in jail for the time being until the next day when they can call him out and, and have a talk. So they pull Peter and, and John out of jail so they can have a word with them, figure out what they need to do, and a couple of things strike them in this interaction. Peter and John lack advanced education. They lack rabbinical training. And yet they know how to handle and apply the Scriptures. And they do it with boldness. must have been very strange to these religious leaders to, to engage with people who aren't intimidated by them, who, who can't be bullied by them, who aren't ruled by the opinions and approval of others. Men whose convictions don't change based on what it will cost them. These religious leaders will do anything to maintain their positions of power and authority and privilege. They'll do whatever it takes. Isn't that just what people do? Not Peter and John. Not Peter and John. And think about how this glorifies God. Think about how their actions point to the greatness of God. They'd rather have Jesus. Rather have Jesus than the, the approval of these people. Rather have, have Jesus than whatever pain could be afflicted on them, the avoidance of such pain. Jesus is the superior treasure. We won't buy what you're selling. We have something better. Verse 13 says they were astonished at Peter and John. They still didn't get it. They should have been disturbed to the bottom of their souls. They even knew why. They knew Peter and John had been with Jesus. And yet they press on, they, not to figure out what's true, but to stop what is obviously true. I imagine this conversation going on amongst them. What are we going to do? What can we even say? Well, we could tell them the miraculous isn't even possible. Jesus doesn't have that kind of power. We killed Jesus, by the way. This man could not have been healed in his name. Oh, but I don't think we can say that. Oh, well, why not? Well, the guy who was a cripple is standing right there. He's right there standing. The guy who was crippled for the first 40 years of his life. Everyone knew him. Everyone knew he couldn't stand or walk or run, and now they know he can. The Sanhedrin didn't even bother disputing the miracle. I'm sure, they would have disputed if they could, but they, they couldn't. They simply asked back from verse 4, by what power or by what name did you do this? Peter told them very directly, not presenting Jesus as one way of many, but as the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved. R.C. Sproul tells the story of being invited to speak at the atheist club of a local university, if you can imagine this. And I would guess they were just expecting some kind of a debate, a friendly exchange of ideas, maybe some evidences for Christianity presented that they could interact with and, and refute or, or discuss. But Sproul used the opportunity to explain that their issue with Christianity wasn't intellectual, it was moral. They didn't believe in the existence of God because they didn't want to believe in the existence of God. 
that they had the knowledge of the truth, but they were suppressing it consciously or subconsciously. They were suppressing what is plain so that they can live however they want to live. Romans 1, 18 through 32 for a further study. I believe Sproul said he wasn't invited back to that group. But, but that's just what plays out here with the Sanhedrin. They had the truth. They had the life of Christ. They had the witness of the apostles. The gospel preached to them. They had this man who they know was a cripple, but he's not anymore, standing in their presence. And their heart is not, what is true, so we can figure out how to respond to the truth. Their heart is, how can I live how I want to live in spite of what is true? We see the power of desire and its ability to corrupt rational thinking. And we're no better. We're born with the same sinful bent, every one of us. We don't naturally approach truth claims rationally or objectively. We bring this all-consuming, overwhelming bias by which we can talk ourselves into believing anything in order to continue on running our own lives, doing what we want. And this is what makes, for me anyway, the, the new covenant so spectacular, the new heart so amazing. To go from a heart that wants nothing more than to have its own way to a heart that desires to do God's will is nothing less than a miracle. And this is what happens in conversion. It's entirely supernatural. These leaders know they can't say anything. Verse 14, the man is standing right there, so what can they do? Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do to, with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. We cannot deny it. We would deny it, but we can't. So what can they do? Well, this is their plan, verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called him and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Well, they can't actually do anything here. All they can do at this point is act tough, make threats. You wonder if they knew how fruitless this was going to be. They've noticed how bold Peter and John are in the face of their authority. And now Peter and John are just going to cave when threatened with a few demerits. Again, these religious leaders have rarely seen true conviction, never met someone who wouldn't back down in the face of persecution, can't conceive of a man not living first for the approval and acceptance of others. It's interesting to, to note these leaders think of themselves as the one in control, the ones in control, the ones in charge, the ones with the authority, and, and other people must do what they say, when in reality they're the ones in bondage. They must do what public opinion dictates. They are slaves to the opinions of men. What they really want to do is physically punish Peter and John, but they can't because they fear the people. Verse 21. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. Peter and John, on the other hand, are free. Even when they're in jail, they're free. They, they have the ability to choose to do the thing that gives them greatest joy. They are free to know Christ and to make Him known. 
They have the power to do that which they will never regret for a billion years. No earthly magistrate can stop that. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Right? Here's some common ground. Don't we all agree that we must listen to God rather than men? But are Peter and John then arguing we, they are no, under no obligation to obey governing authorities? Does being a Christian mean we don't need to obey the government? Clearly not. Peter himself says in 1 Peter 2.13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. It is the duty of Christians to submit to the authority over us. Government, bosses, teachers, children, obey your parents. It is our duty to submit to the authority over us unless obeying earthly authority would mean disobeying God. Unless you can't obey both. Unless by listening to others you can't also listen to God. In which case you are required to disobey the lesser magistrate. Always fascinating to me when the government legalizes or promotes some new thing which has always been immoral, and suddenly it's legal, and, and people rejoice, right? This happens more and more all the time. Happening all the time. People rejoice as if now their, their immoral, acti- immoral activity is, is now righteous. It's now acceptable. It's now okay, as if the state has ultimate power to determine right and wrong, as if public opinion, popular opinion, played out amongst elected officials, has that ability Fooling ourselves. We know intuitively that that can't be. But again, truth suppressors for the sake of being our own bosses. After World War II, Nazi war criminals were brought to trial at Nuremberg. They were accused of horrific crimes. The things they did were just awful. Hard to even imagine in many cases. And for many, they didn't dispute the charges. Many didn't even dispute them. They just argued they were following orders. I was just following orders. They were not responsible for, that, for their actions because they were only doing what they were told to do. And in the end, the court determined, that's no excuse. That's not an excuse. You are required to disobey criminal orders even if the consequences for disobeying orders is severe, even if disobeying such orders costs you your life, the court essentially acknowledged the greater magistrate, a law higher than whatever government authorities are immediately over us. We know that, but we suppress it because we don't want to answer to the greater magistrate. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare. Consider this analogy. To be terrified of a kitten, but have no fear of a lion, makes you a fool. Adolf Hitler himself, is he the kitten or is he the lion in this analogy? 
in comparison to the creator and sustainer of the universe, he's not even a flea on the kitten. To be terrified of Adolf Hitler but have no fear of God makes you a fool. John says this in, in his gospel, John 12, 42, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I believe we can relate. Anytime we compromise our Christian convictions because we don't want to offend, we love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. When we are anxious or depressed or angry regarding someone's opinion about us, isn't that because we are loving the glory that comes from man more than we love the glory that comes from God? When we disobey God because we want people to like us, because we love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. When this happens, we are in bondage. We are idolaters. We are slaves to our need for the approval of people. We do what such things tell us to do. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They must speak of what they have seen and heard. They are compelled externally and internally. They, they've been commanded to speak, commanded to preach the gospel. They know what God wants them to do, and they want to do it. They are compelled by their own desire to make Him known. When you're just immersed in the grace and mercy of God, when you're overwhelmed by His love, incredulous at all that He has done for an undeserving sinner, enraptured by the superior treasure that He is, and completely in awe of His glory, how could you be silent? You couldn't keep your mouth shut. They cannot but speak of what they have seen and heard. Again, how strange to unbelievers. How strange that must have seemed to them. Peter and John actually relished this opportunity. They didn't consider obeying this order for a moment, nor did they say, okay, we'll take this under advisement and then go on about their business. They straight told them, we're not doing that. We won't do that. We can't not do that. And it's not that Peter and John don't care what people think. That's not the secret sauce, failing to care what what people think. They actually care immensely that people think the right thoughts, know what is true, believe what is true. So much so that they preach the gospel. So much so that they're not just trying to get off the hook. They're trying to use every opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Caring so much about the gospel and what is true in the souls of men and women that they don't compromise the truth. They don't water it down. They're not trying to find something they all agree on. They bring the gospel and call for a response. Yes or no. In or out. There is no middle ground. There's one name and it's Jesus. Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius are not all paths to a true understanding of God. There's one name. The commandment keeping self-righteousness is not a path to God. There's one way, and it's Jesus. And to come to Him, you must repent of your sin and trust in Him and Him alone. 
Nathan Cole, a Connecticut farmer who in 1741 heard George Whitfield preach and then wrote down the story of his conversion, he said this, My hearing Whitfield preach gave me a heart wound, and I saw by God's blessing my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. Have you felt the heart wound of knowing that your righteous deeds are as filthy rags? That you have no righteousness of your own? That your only hope is the perfect life and the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead? And if you have, are you ready for the opposition that is now and is to come? Loving the world with the gospel without allowing the world to tell us what part of our beliefs are acceptable. James Guthrie was a Scottish martyr for Christianity. He was hanged for his faith in 1661. And when he was tried before his judge and jury, someone turned to him and, quoting an old Scottish proverb, exhorted him to duck in order to miss the oncoming wave of fury. And he replied, There is no ducking in the kingdom of Christ. Peter and John refused to duck. How were were they able to do this? How could they live so free from the pressures of ungodly men? How could they love their enemies so well that they could stand and deliver the gospel instead of trying to save their own skins? That they would relish every opportunity to share the gospel regardless of how difficult the circumstance. Well, the unbelieving religious leaders knew, verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Not that they got coffee with Jesus at Starbucks one time, or that they had a counseling session with Jesus one time. They did life with Jesus. They followed Jesus. They immersed themselves in his teachings and in his person. They knew him and were known by him. This is the same Peter who who denied Jesus so vehemently, his actions so cowardly, but not anymore. The gospel has clicked for him. And what the unbelieving religious leaders noticed about Peter and John, I think, is instructive for us. They were astonished, and they recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. This is the the heart of a life that honors God, that, that spills out in boldness, that overflows in joy. It's a life centered around Jesus, knowing Him, His life in us. Not first a movement toward morality, rule-keeping, good deed-doing, religious rituals, trying to be a good person. It's a movement to knowing Christ, following Him day by day. So let me give you just one encouragement to this end. We must preach the gospel to ourselves every day, throughout the day. If we don't, we fall into a faith plus works conception of salvation that actually leads us away from Jesus. So if you were were to die today, 
and stand before God, and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer that? What would you say in response to that question? Listen to what Alistair Begg had to say about this. If you answer that question in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Beg continues, loved ones, the the only proper response is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership, and yet you made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know. And he imagines this scenario playing out. What are you doing here? Thief on the cross says, I don't know. (laughs) What do you mean you don't know? I I don't know. Excuse me, let me get my supervisor. So they get the supervisor angel. So just a few questions for you. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? Never heard of it in my life. And what about the doctrine of Scripture? And the guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, the supervisor says, On what basis are you here? And the thief on the cross says, Well, the man on the middle cross said I can come. That is the only answer. That is the only answer. And all that, just a conversation Alistair Begg imagines, right? So don't take it too seriously, but, but don't miss the point. His life, his death, his blood, his resurrection, his righteousness. May we fix our gaze on him, on who he is and what he has done. That the world might see his life lived in us and might take note that we have been with Jesus. Let's pray. How we praise you for what you have done. You've done it all in bringing us to you. May our lives overflow with praise and joy and boldness. I pray for myself, God, that my tongue would be loose to speak your praises to people who, who need to know you, who need the gospel. Pray that we as your people would be free with the gospel. We'd have a boldness that comes from you that points people to you. Pray that you do that in us for your glory. In Jesus' name.